what's for dinner? The question we all face. Hey everybody, it's Nina. I've been a chef for the past 12 years and I still lose all creativity when it comes to that question. Join me in exploring what some guests plan to cook for dinner. The theme of this week is food in academia. For our next guest, we have Dr. Amy Bentley from New York University. She's a professor of food studies, food historian, and author. Welcome, Dr. Bentley. Thank you. It's nice to be here. What got you into food studies? Very good question, because when I got interested in food studies, food studies did not exist. (laughs) So I was in a graduate program in American studies, American civilization, it was called at Penn. And I was looking for a dissertation topic. I was interested in World War II as a time period and gender as a analytic category. But I wanted to focus on the home front, not the the war itself. I remembered my mother, who was a child during the war, talk about stories of her mother growing a victory garden and saving fat on the back of the stove that they would donate for explosives. Anyway, all these home, these ways that just ordinary citizens could contribute to the war effort at home. And I was in the National, the Library of Congress, National Archives, and I asked the archivist, I said, do you have anything on Victory Gardens? I was looking for a dissertation topic specifically. He said, oh, let me check. Let me go back and look. And he eventually came back pushing a cart full of boxes and boxes of documents. He said, wow, we've got a lot on Victory Gardens, and I'm not sure anybody has looked at this material. And I was like, ah, yeah, yeah, right. So I knew I'd found my topic, and um, my dissertation evolved from being just about Victory Gardens to being about World War II food rationing in general from a gendered perspective, the propaganda that was aimed at women, for instance, to conserve food, and then how they themselves responded to that propaganda, that information, when they actually had to shop and cook and put food on the table for their families. So it was a great dissertation. I loved it. I I thought it was really interesting. And I got more and more interested in the food aspect than the gender and the war aspect and discovered a growing body of literature in sociology and anthropology on food, the meanings of food, symbolic uses of food, the way food binds us together as a as a community. And I found a little organization, the Association for the Study of Food and Society, that was a small collection of scholars, interdisciplinary scholars who studied food. And I thought, oh, yes, I found my people. And then a few, I was teaching at the University of Colorado, and then a, this program at New York University started called Food Studies, and they were looking for somebody who could teach in the humanities and social sciences. Uh, and I thought, oh, this is a perfect job for me. I am perfectly qualified. I don't have to fudge it a little bit. So anyway, I, I came to NYU in 1996, and I've been here for over 25 years, and I've just really enjoyed teaching, researching, thinking about food, writing about food. The students are amazing. And so my projects have expanded beyond World War II, but mostly stay within 20th century U.S. history and culture of food. I'm really fascinated with your book about baby food. Can you talk to what your book is about? Sure. That was my next book length manuscript. And I got interested in that topic when I had a baby. 
And that baby time came for him to eat solid food. And I looked in the grocery store and there were just aisles of different products and different little jars of food and formulas and marketing and paraphernalia. And I thought, wow, what did babies eat before all this stuff? And I thought, well, I could figure that out because I'm a food historian. And so the book evolved from there. It became a case study of the American food supply, the quote unquote invention of baby food and how it both was a part of and responded to ideas about parenting, nutrition, wellness and health, industrialization of the food supply, um, the anxieties of being a good mother and furnishing food for your baby, all of those things. And so it just takes us through mostly the 20th century and into the 21st. A main thesis is ideas about feeding infants, the practices and the foods themselves change depending on the scientific attitudes toward food and feeding at the time, ideas about being a good mother and the volume and aspects of food and the food supply at the time. So I was so fascinated by your research because when you were presenting in class, I'm like, I'm a mom too. And (laughs) so much pressure is laid out on us, especially I wasn't able to breastfeed and formula. And I was looking it up and problems with breastfeeding has always been a cause, but nobody talks about it because it was like an era of just breastfeed, breastfeed, breastfeed. And I was like, I felt like a bad mom. Exactly. And the ideas about what a bad mom or a good mom are change according to the time. So in the 1950s and 60s, to be a good mom, you fed your, you formula fed your child and you started them on Gerber baby food at about six weeks of age. You know, fast forward to the end of the 20th century, early 21st century, to be a good mom means exclusively breastfeeding your baby to age one. And making your own baby food, introducing that at six months of age, you know, so the prescriptions are very distinct and different in just a matter of a generation. And it causes a lot of anxiety for parents. Oh, for sure. I didn't know that. I didn't know formula was a thing. I was like, oh, I have to just do breastfeeding. And the lactation consultant was like, you need to sleep. It's okay if you give them baby formula. But then it also made me think of, I talked to my mom about in Puerto Rico, like when there was disasters like hurricane and access to formula wasn't there, but she couldn't breastfeed either. She just started giving me baby food when I was two months old. And she also told me that in Puerto Rico, they have such a coffee centered culture that babies would be given coffee. I've heard that, that from a little infant, a little few drops of coffee are put in a baby bottle which is fun, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it also speaks to, there are different ideas about infant feeding and first foods and types of foods that are different all over the world. So a first food in China would, might be congee, rice cereal, but in Latin America, it might be mashed up beans, or it might be an avocado in some place. Similarly, ideas about when to introduce those foods may be different. I think that speaks to if you cover the general bases, food, clothing, shelter, love, attention, babies can be healthy and they are very resilient. Are there some proven scientific practices that may be better than others? 
I think so. Have we figured out when the GI tract has been fully developed and is ready to digest food? I think so. You know, there's certain things that we have developed and discovered along the way. But that said, babies are very resilient. And if you provide the basics and are attentive, I think they will be all right. I thought about you because for one of my assignments for one of my classes, I was looking at different food pyramids in different countries. Mm -hmm. And some of them have breastfeeding in the food pyramid and the U.S. doesn't. And I was like, is it because we prioritize so much for the mother to go back to work? Some are, are different depending on how progressive the country is, how beholden they are to food corporations. So if you look at, say, Brazil's food pyramid, I believe it is one of the tenants is don't use hyper processed foods. Now, in the United States, you could never do that because food is so political and the government is so beholden to food corporations. So it is interesting to see how they play out in different countries, depending on their independence from corporations or the goals of the public health establishment. So interesting. Where do you get your food inspiration from? You know, I have to say it's more and more from um, the New York Times cooking app. So if you're lucky enough to have access to that, I I don't think there's a bad recipe there. They're just amazing recipes. They're fresh. They really try to incorporate a variety of ingredients and flavors and perspectives. And you can find whatever kind of specialty diet you want, whatever, you know, meat, non-meat, vegan. And the pictures are so appealing and compelling. And so while I have cookbooks and I like to leaf through them and I do look, you know, there's some internet recipes that I'm like, "Mm, maybe I'll try that. My go-to is still the New York Times cooking app. That and just, I mean, I'm an adept enough cook now. I can almost, I can just look in my fridge and go, okay, I've got eggs, I've got cheese, I've got some beets, you know, maybe I'll roast some beets, I'll do an omelet, and we'll do a salad, you know, like I can just put together meals that I like without recipes as well. Do you have a dish that changed your life or a nostalgic Mm. meal you want to share? You know, I do have a dish that changed my understanding of food. And, you know, I grew up in the 70s, mostly. And we were in love with packaged foods and processed foods. My mom tried them all out. I think she was a bored housewife and she was looking for inspiration and wasn't that interested in putting food on the table day in, day out for your family for four kids is not that fun. And so we, and we clamored for things like tang and Kool-Aid and canned chili. And we just ate a lot of processed canned goods. A lot of people did in that period. We also had home-cooked meals and we had fresh fruit and we had other things as well. But I was definitely a kid of the canned food. It's called the golden age of food processing in the United States because everything is produced by a food corporation and they tend to have a lot of preservatives, a lot of additives, a lot of salt or sugar, and that affects the flavors and the textures of food. But we traveled a lot as kids. My dad had jobs overseas and we spent time in Europe. We spent time in Mexico, other Latin American countries. And when I was nine, we lived in Europe and we spent time in Germany. And then they bought a VW camper and we just drove all around Europe camping in the winter, which was very ambitious for them. And I was exposed to food that I had not been exposed to before. So going down to the coast, 
of England and buying a dozen oysters and having them open them up and slurping oysters. That was a revelation. The texture, the flavor, it tasted like the ocean, but what seemed icky was actually very delicious. Having strawberries and clotted cream at, you know, in the marketplace, tasting really old medieval gingerbread recipes at the Christmas markets in Germany. But and especially one meal I remember in particular is we were driving and we stopped at a little pension in Lyon, France, which is known for its amazing food. And it was just a very, very small, we would call it an Airbnb. And the woman produced a home cooked meal for us. She produced it was a it was a soup. It was like a squash soup or something. Something I would not normally have and I remember being struck at how flavorful and delicious it was. I had never tasted intense flavors like that before. Uh, I didn't know there could be taste like that. I didn't know that food tasted that vibrant and alive. And I was this kid, you know, nine-year-old kid thinking, wow, this is different. This is not like the Campbell's tomato soup that I'm used to or chicken noodle with the limp, wet, no you know, limp noodles. There's a whole world of food out there. And I didn't become a gourmand or anything right away, but I just remembered that. And I just remembered what quality food was and what tastes were and how they might be compared to, you know, what I was more used to. Thank you for taking us on that journey. I could just <laughs> picture the food as you had explained it. You're very busy. And especially during this time, midterms. Do you have a favorite dish to make on your busiest day? On the busiest day, I definitely go for those no recipe dinners. So we do eat a lot of omelets. We do have salad and I rely on prepared food. I'll sometimes buy Trader Joe's tomato feta soup and have that with a salad and some delicious crusty bread. Or we have a delicious pasta shop down the street. We're very lucky in New York City to have a lot of really great prepared foods. So Raffetto's on Houston Street is our go-to pasta place. It has a delicious ravioli, delicious fresh sauces, delicious pesto. So we'll often have pasta. I have been on a shakshuka kick. So Melissa Clark has a shakshuka recipe in the New York Times that it's just very easy, but also super flavorful and, you know, sauteing onions and garlic and just the right amount of warm spices, adding chopped tomatoes, peppers, letting it simmer, and then breaking the eggs over the top and putting some feta on it, sticking it under the broiler. And then just, just having a big bowl of that with some bread toasted with butter on it is really just almost my favorite dinner. It's just hits the spot in so many ways. And it doesn't take that long to make. And it doesn't require a lot of expensive ingredients. I miss so much the food culture by NYU. I haven't traveled a lot, but nowhere in the world like it. And it got me nervous during the pandemic about how the food culture would change there. Has it been affected? No, no. It came roaring back. I mean, the streets are as crowded as ever. The restaurants seem to be back. I mean, what has changed, I think, is more emphasis on quick service and self-service. I think there are still some labor issues, you know, finding enough labor to staff restaurants, which makes sense. And they're having to reevaluate their restaurant financial business plan. It just doesn't work with relying on tipping so much. And so they're trying to work it out so that they can stay in business and also pay their employees a living wage. There is just amazing food culture around. There's just great ramen places. 
one of my new favorites. Uh, I was just up in on Pier 50. Like the, there's a, it's up by the little island. There's a new pier. I can't remember the name of it, but it's got those little, a little food court of delicious kinds of tastes and flavors of foods. Chelsea Market? No. Well, it's by Chelsea Market, but it's actually on the river. It's oh. where the city winery is. And it now has a whole slate of little food shops. But Chelsea Market is also a fantastic one as well. I love yeah. I was able to do my internship through NYU at Chelsea Market, oh. the green table, but it closed. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the restaurant industry for you, too. It's just very tenuous and is always coming and going. Yeah. Do you have any kitchen or meal hacks? You know, I shop at Trader Joe's a lot. I buy, you know, I have a freezer full of frozen food for a pinch. They're they're dumplings, I feel like, are really good. And I love peanut butter and jelly. I'm always down for some peanut butter and jelly on toast or bread to bring to work. I love apples and cheese. I love candy ginger. So that's a good one. You know, this a new Wegmans just opened up on Astor Place. I walked in there the other day and it looks amazing. They have amazing prepared food. So I I don't cook from scratch every day. We have really good prepared food, takeout food. I don't rely on food deliveries. I don't like the system of those third-party Uber Eats and DoorDash that I feel like just take so much of a profit from the deliverer and the restaurant. I will always walk to the restaurant and pick up my takeout if I'm buying takeout or just eat there. Because I, I feel very strongly about that, that that system is not healthy. But as far as hacks, the whole thing of girl dinner, I kind of like, and I feel like <laughs> I do a girl dinner. I just stand in front of the fridge and I'll say, okay, I have an apple. I have, you know, some cheese here. And that works just great for me. Like I'm totally comfortable doing that. Yes. Uh, what's your favorite girl dinner item from Trader Joe's? I personally love their blueberry goat cheese. Oh, I've never had that. Okay. I've got the herbed goat cheese, which I really like. Yeah. Their blueberry goat cheese is, I buy it every time I go. That's fun. <laughs> That's great. I yeah. love Trader Joe's as well. That's the hack for our family because food prices are going up everywhere. And I feel like Trader Joe's is the one place where we can get a good meal for a good amount of money. I agree. I agree. My last question is what's for dinner tonight? Oh, you know, we're going out for tacos. <laughs> my son is home for a while living with us and my husband will be home. And uh, on Lafayette is uh, Los Tacos Numero Uno. Did you ever have those? Yeah. They were in Chelsea Market and they're my favorite tacos. Yeah, They're so good. I mean, New York has not had good tacos for a long time. It's been really hard. You know, maybe in the outer boroughs, maybe in Queens, I think they had great tacos, but not in Manhattan. And so Los Tacos Numero Uno is fantastic. We're going to go there. Levan Bakery is right next door. So we'll probably pick up a cookie and have just a really delicious dinner. Their tacos, I'll never forget the pineapple salsa. Yes. Tacos al pastor. Yeah. So good. I have, you know, I, I did some, some student travel abroad classes in Puebla and Oaxaca. And so I just have amazing memories of sitting in those Zocalos, sitting at a table. They just bring tortillas and meat and salsas and pineapple, and then just like just making tacos and eating them. So having tacos just brings me back to that wonderful place. What a great memory. Well, thank you for joining us, Dr. Bentley. I really appreciate you. 
You're welcome. It's been fun to chat with you. I wish you so much good luck. This episode is brought to you by Advertly, your user-friendly advertising platform. Thanks for listening. Peace and chicka